Amen. Let's worship him this morning. Amen. How many have come to desire his presence this morning? Amen. Hallelujah, Lord. Come on, I want you to put your hands together this morning. Come on. church and come on sing see what our Savior has done oh see how his love overcomes he has to break he has to break Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, sing it. Oh, hero of heaven, you conquer the grave. You free every captive. Oh, yeah, God, you have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awaken the light. Oh, Jesus, I say, your name lifted high. Oh, God, you have done great
on one more time. Give Jesus your best praise this morning. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Amen. into worship this morning as we sing oh you're never gonna let come on sing yeah oh you're never gonna let never gonna let oh yeah oh I believe that oh
the king of my heart be the wind inside my sail the anchor in the waves oh is my song I want you to sing that right now and declare that the king is no fun, y'all. Oh, man. Has anybody ever been tested? It is no bueno. <laughs> no fun. And uh, it was, oh, man, I missed last Sunday. I love being with my family. Love being in this people of God. Love being in church. I love the freedom that we have to come and worship our God. Amen. Because there is no rock that's going to cry out in my place as long as I'm alive to glorify him. Come on, we're a Pentecostal church in here this morning. How many believe that? Come on, somebody shout hallelujah. I have the freedom to shout hallelujah. Come on, somebody shout hallelujah. Shout hallelujah. Woo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Come on, do I have some people that agree with me this morning? Yeah. stories I want to tell, but I'm not going to. <laughs> but I'm just thankful for the goodness and mercy of God. That church, we serve a God that loves and cares for his people. That as long as we continue to pursue him and pursue his presence, that there is nothing that is unstoppable for our God. Amen. He holds us in the palm of his hand this morning. That may be for somebody this morning. He holds you in the palm of his hand. No longer do you need to fear no longer do you need to be anxious. He holds you in the palm of his hand. Do you believe me? Come on. He holds us in the palm of his hand. He holds me in the palm of his hand. I want you to imagine that right now. Oh, for my God's arms are open wide. I want you to worship right now with every hand lifted in this room. Come on, Lord, I thank you for holding me. I'm thankful for your protection. I'm thankful for your healing. I'm thankful for your provision. Lord, I'm thankful for salvation. I'm thankful for family. I'm thankful for friends. I'm thankful for the church. I'm thankful for you, oh God, and what you are doing in my life. How you're birthing a new freedom. You're birthing a new calling. You're birthing a new anointing. You're birthing a new fresh fire that's going to fall upon this church. Lord, that this church become a beacon in the night. Come on, is there anybody that agrees with me this morning? That this church become a beacon in the night. Yeah. Oh, Lord, I want to be a beacon for you. I want to be a beacon for you, Jesus. Oh, for those watching online, just say, I want to be a beacon in the night. I want to be a beacon at my job. I want to be a beacon in my school. I want to be a beacon in my surroundings. Oh, yeah. Because he unraveled. 
rivals me with a melody. You surround me with a song. I want you to sing this. Come on, you declare. Hugged. Shout it out. Till. Declare it, church. Come on, sing. I'm no.
Lord, lift your voice. Oh. Sing it out, church. We sing Kingdom authority, kingdom authority. 
comes from his throne unto his own his anthem I'm changed. Forever I am changed by your love. In the presence of your majesty. Father, we're thankful for your presence this morning. We stand in awe of your goodness. We stand in awe of your grace. You are majestic. And God, I pray right now that we just open our ears to hear. Open our minds to understand. Lord, more importantly, may we open our ears to hear your word. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Can you give the Lord a shout of praise this morning? Turn to one next to you and give an air high five. It's great to have you here this morning. It's great that you're watching online. Thank you for joining us. My name is Greg Lukianoff. I am the CEO and President of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, also known as FIRE, and I'm the co-author with Jonathan Haidt of Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Uh, in the book, uh, I work with a famous social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, um, to try to get to the bottom of why we started seeing so many changes among students uh, right around, uh, of college students, right around the year 2013-2014. 
Um, we were trying to figure out initially why I saw so many more students demanding um, censorship um, of speakers, demanding speakers be disinvited, demanding new speech codes. Um, and they were framing it in terms of medicalized arguments, not just that I'm offended by someone being on campus, but not me, but someone else will be medically harmed by that person being on campus. Um, I knew enough about psychology to know that that didn't sound right. Um, and then I asked my friend Jonathan, who was a social psychologist, and he said, yeah, that, that doesn't sound right to me either. And it, so the whole book is more or less a social science detective story to get to the bottom of what's going on here. And unfortunately, what we discovered is that um, the attitudes about free speech on campus among students have gotten worse, dramatically so, over the past five years. Um, but worst of all, uh, what we've seen is a dramatic increase in anxiety and depression, and unfortunately, even suicide attempts, uh, particularly hitting young women for the generation who entered school around 2013, 2014. Um, so for the entire book, we're trying to figure out what happened, why it happened, what went wrong, but most importantly, how we can fix it. Well, good morning. If you love Jesus, say amen. amen. Glad for the goodness of God. Glad to see you here this morning. Thank you for uh, being a part and being with us. Thank you for your financial giving, helping us continue to move forward. It's just a crazy, crazy time. How many of you know it's a crazy, crazy time? So I do want to give props to uh, Tom Wickersham and the whole group that was down at the Des Moines Police Department to pray and show support. Appreciate them taking the initiative to do that. Yeah. Let's go to Ezra chapter 6. We're going to go back and rejoin the journey through the book of Ezra. We're in chapter 6. You saw the video intro about a book called The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. That title by itself makes the book worth reading. The Coddling of the American Mind. How good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. In the book, the authors identify three great untruths that have spread widely in recent years and become particularly prevalent among current college students born in 95 or later. So they're identifying what's happening in the college student mindset and the impact it's having on the culture. And here are the three great untruths. You ready? I want you to get these. These are three great untruths that secular uh, sociologists, psychologists, psychiatrists have identified. Number one is the untruth of fragility, that this generation is beginning to believe what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. My generation, your generation, grew up believing what doesn't kill you makes you stronger but there's a mindset today that any obstacle that you face will make you weaker and the impact on the campuses is clear and profound the second untruth is this the untruth of emotional reasoning always trust your feelings now I want to take a little bit of a poll this morning how many of you have ever trusted your feelings and found out they were wrong raise your neighbor's hand We've all been there, but what's more important today 
then truth is how you feel about the truth. It's all how you feel and the impact that that's having. The third one that I want to focus a little attention on in the light of Ezra chapter 6 is this. The untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good and evil people. Now, I want you to think about that. Biblically, that's an untruth. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against angels and principalities and powers. That's where our battle is. And there's a difference between disagreeing with you and calling you evil. What's happening in our culture is... If I disagree with you, or rather, if you, don't, if you don't agree with me, that makes you a bad person. You're evil, and I can't associate with you because you don't agree with me. And we see that happening all over our culture right now in this rising wave of new leaders. Us versus them is an unhealthy mindset for the people of God. It's an unhealthy mindset for the church. I appreciated talking to Tom Wickersham about the meeting that they had or the gathering they had to just show support for the police department and how there was a, a, an attempt to make it an us-against-them mindset and their, um, their rejection of that. Life is not a battle between good and bad people. It's a battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, and we have to understand that. The result of these three untruths are a higher rate of depression and suicide among young adults because they're not being equipped to deal with the world as it really is. And when you give misinformation and false truths to people who have to deal with a culture that right now is in chaos and dis, uh, disstructure, the end result of that will be a toolkit that they have no idea how to respond to what's happening around them resulting, as they cite in the book, in depression and suicide. Now, I titled the message this morning, When God Uses a Sinner. When God Uses a Sinner. I picked that intentionally because in the church world, we have by and large rejected the word sinner as being too negative and condescending. And I understand that. I don't have a problem changing sinner to people far from God in order to try to communicate a message but in that whole idea, we have to understand that there are people who are not followers of Christ. And people who sin are not going to make it to heaven. And we need to not water down that position. That going to heaven isn't based, however, on your performance, but on your relationship with Jesus Christ. But what can happen in the church, even when we use the term sinner, is we can embrace that same dichotomy of we're in, you're out. We're good, you're bad. We're going to heaven, you're going to hell. And that dichotomy has never been an approach that Jesus used in Scripture. He loved the world. He loved sinners. He loved those that were far from God to bring them into the kingdom and his harshest words were for religious people that weren't living what they professed. God can touch the hearts of sinners to befriend the church. Now think about that for a moment. Not all sinners hate the church. And I have to tell you, I've kind of gotten caught up in that a little bit. All these people that hate 
um, Christians and hate the church. And I know there is that mindset out there. But it's not a mindset that we can adopt because we have to learn about building bridges to lost people rather than burning bridges to evil people. And God deals with people differently. Consider this. God dealt with Cyrus and Darius and softened their hearts. God dealt with Pharaoh and it hardened his heart. Now I have to tell you I'm not a Calvinist so I don't believe that God chose for Pharaoh's heart to get hard and for Darius's heart to be soft. This is what I believe. The same sun that hardens the clay softens butter. It's the response of the individual that determines what will follow. In other words, when God deals with someone, you have to decide how you're going to respond to that. And if you reject that, your heart will become harder. That's not God's fault because he knows everything and knows exactly what you need to have in order to believe. But there are people then that reject what they need to have and then don't believe and their heart becomes harder. And we have to discern the difference between a pharaoh who wanted to kill all of Israel and a Darius who wants to help Israel. Neither were God followers. How many are hearing what I'm saying? And if we burn all the bridges to lost people, we'll not have the opportunity to lead them to Christ. When I was growing up, the mindset was clearly you have to believe before you can belong. So if you're going to become part of the church, you had to have a testimony of faith. We didn't let you do anything, hardly except sit on a pew, and no involvement of any kind until you were saved, baptized in water, some places baptized in the Holy Spirit, depending on how strict you were, you were going to believe before you belonged. But there's a generation that rejects that. They want to belong before they're willing to believe. They want to be accepted. They want to be loved. They want to be cared for. And I believe that's a model that we have to consider. We need to guard against burning the wrong bridges and building the wrong bridges. Let me illustrate it this way. Ezra chapter 4. There were enemies of God. And Zerubbabel said, get out, you have no part of us. There are people who have the spirit of Antichrist. There are people who have rejected God entirely. There are people who want to see the church fail and fall, and we can't build a bridge to them because I believe that you can compromise your testimony by what you identify with. Ezra chapter 4 says, you're not welcome here. These were people that were halfway in and halfway out. There are people that were part Jewish and part the, the Assyrian nation. And the response was, we're not giving you room in this building of God's kingdom. That bridge needed to be burned. But in Ezra chapter 6, there was a bridge to Darius that needed to be built. Don't assume, don't assume, it's the lie of the hour. Don't assume that everyone who is um, not a Christ follower hates you. Don't believe that. There are, <laughs> there are people that hate you. That is real. I don't want you to be 
you know, in lollipop land and bouncing around with the Oompa Loompas and everything's going to be fine. I don't want you to believe that. But not everybody hates you. And we get this defensive. Is anybody hearing me this morning? We get this defensive mentality that once we get outside the walls, this same spirit. Now, please hear me. This same spirit that is revealing itself in coronavirus that we're terrified we're going to get it and use wisdom, we're trying to social distance, do the right things, but fears not from God affects our relationship with people. We have that same mindset that there are evil people out there that are going to get us, and it may be they don't hate you. It may be they want a bridge built to them. And Ezra chapter 6 shows us the kind of heart that God can move. When you see these characteristics in individuals, they may not be Christ followers, but it shows a heart that is going to be responsive to God, and it's the kind of heart we need to look for, and it's the kind of heart we need to model. <laughs> because if God can move the heart of an unbeliever, he needs to be able to move our hearts as well. What kind of heart can God move? What kind of heart should we be looking toward? Who should we build bridges toward? Number one, I'd suggest to you that God can move the heart of a man of integrity. A man of integrity. In Ezra chapter 6, when Darius gets the report of what's happening in the building of the temple, he doesn't react to either side. He doesn't have an emotional reaction or a... A, a, a sudden reaction, he says, search the archives and find the truth. People of integrity are not going to respond to the uh, inflammatory nature of the moment, but are willing to do the work to get to where the answer is. And a person who's willing to look for the truth is a person who has integrity whose heart God can move. You don't have to be a Christ follower to want to know the truth. But if you're in pursuit of truth, you'll become a Christ follower. What is integrity? What does that look like? What does that look like for us? What does it look like in the world? Well, from a secular perspective, integrity means following your moral and ethical convictions and doing the right thing in all circumstances, even though no one is watching you. Now, I'm going to pause there. I don't think integrity means always doing the right thing or we're all sunk. How many of you have ever, as a Christ follower, violate a conviction that you hold? You've made a mistake. You've done something. You lied. We know it. But it's a heart that says, I don't want to live in conflict with what I, want, what, what I truly believe. I'm committed to living that. And I may veer from time to time, but it draws me back. Having integrity means you are true to yourself and have, a de and have no desire to do anything that demeans or dishonors you. Let me give you some examples of integrity in everyday living. Integrity means this, keeping your promises even if it takes extra effort. Keeping your promises. Going back to a store and paying for something you forgot to pay for. That's not a blessing from God. <laughs> you are a thief. <laughs> Inadvertent as it may be, go back and pay the bill. 
inform the cashier that they gave you too much change, which they're not doing today anyway, but rolling out of the machine, it's too much change. I did that once. A change machine got stuck, and it's like four bucks of coins started flying out of there, and my first reaction was, hallelujah. <laughs> I don't play the lottery, but this is right up there. This is getting right up there. And I turned it in, and uh, the cashier was irritated with me because it implied they made a mistake. You know what integrity is in everyday life? Remaining true to your spouse. Integrity in everyday life is ignoring someone's advice on how to cheat on your taxes and not get caught. I found a loophole. I'm not interested, number one, because I don't want to go to prison. And here's another mark of integrity we need to teach our kids. Don't let someone else take the blame for something you did. <laughs> How many know you're guilty whether you get caught or not? That's integrity. What about in the workplace? Oh, so glad you asked. Let's talk about the workplace. Integrity in the workplace is showing respect for coworkers with appropriate conversation and empathy, caring about people. It's adhering to company policies and procedures. And that's all across the board. I, we're living in a, in a spirit of antichrist today that says, if I don't agree with the policy, I don't have to submit to it. That is wrong. Integrity means I've submitted myself under authority. And in submitting myself under authority, I'm going to adhere to those policies, whether I agree with them or not. I could change them. I'll talk about making them different, but I don't rebel against them. It means being responsible, doing what you'll say you'll do about using materials for work and not personal use, not stealing supplies from the office. Let me give you some quotes on integrity to grab what this looks like. Because there are people in the world that believe what I'm saying to you right now. There are people that are not Christ followers who believe every word of what I'm saying to you this morning. We need to build a bridge to them because they're not far from the kingdom of God. Clement Stone have the courage to say no. Have the courage to face the truth. Do the right thing because it is right. These are the magic keys to living your life with integrity. Thomas Monson, perhaps the surest test of an individual's integrity is his refusal to do or say anything that would damage his self-respect. And Alan Cohen says, you are in integrity when the life you're living on the outside matches who you are on the inside. It speaks of wholeness, of consistency, of being who you say you are. And this ruler named Darius said, I'm not going to respond to the pressure over here. I'm not going to respond to the political action campaign over here. I'm going to look to find the truth and make a decision that's based on what is right. Integrity shows honesty of heart and mind. And I will tell you that deceitfulness will always harden your heart. God can move and use people who have integrity in their lives. Look for those people and build a bridge to them and be a person of integrity so you can build a bridge to them. Darius was a man of integrity. God can move on that heart. Second, he was a man of spirituality. Look at the decree of Darius. Now remember, Darius was not a Jew. He was not a God-fearer as such. But I want you to hear what he says about spiritual life. Beginning in verse 8. I hereby decree what you are to do for the elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. This is amazing. I don't know if you read this ahead, but you, but you ought to. It's amazing what this, 
what this pagan king says. Their expenses are to be fully paid where? Out of the royal treasury. From the revenues, <clears throat> excuse me, of the trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male lambs for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, olive oil as requested by the priests in Jerusalem must be given them daily without fail so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven. Now watch, pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of me and my sons. There are people out there that may not be Christ followers but respect spiritual life and spiritual reality. We need to build a bridge to them and we need to model that in our own lives. In our culture today, there is a conflict between spirituality and religion. And there's a separation that is increasing in our country. People are becoming more and more identified as spiritual and less and less identified as religious. They don't want form. They do want life. I've heard that expressed here in our own fellowship, and I appreciate that. Don't ask me to do something to just, just perfunctorily fill a role. I want to do something that's going to impact and change lives, and that ought to be the passion of all of our hearts. I don't want to just do something religious. I give respect and passion to that which is spiritually true. Spirituality has become associated with the interior life of the individual, placing an emphasis on the well-being of mind, body, and spirit, while religion refers to organizational or even communal dimensions. There was a study conducted in 2012 by the Pew Research Center and says that a fifth of the U.S. public and a third of adults under the age 30 are unaffiliated with any religion but identify themselves as being spiritual in some way. Think about that. A third who are not atheists, they're not agnostic, they're saying, we don't want religion, but we're spiritual. Do you know what we need to do? We're Pentecostals. What should mark us? We have a name that we live but are dead. I mean, that, there's the world out there that says we have a name that we live but are dead. We need to have a name that we live in our life. We need to demonstrate to them that our faith is real, that we believe it, that it is lived out in everyday life. And Darius says, I believe in your faith. I'm going to empower you to seek the God of heaven. And while you're at it, would you pray for me? <laughs> there are people out there that want you to pray for them. They want you to step out of the norm and begin to pray. I've shared with you a story. A man at the gym, this has been some years ago, said, hey, I'm going through a hard time. Will you pray for me? And I said, sure, right here. And he said, oh, no, no, not here, not here. So I prayed for him later and talked to him about it. Ended up that he shared with me a television broadcast where he gave his life to Jesus. I was talking to a police officer from the area in the campus at the gym and talking about his struggles, another pastor and I went over and another pastor's wife and laid hands on him in the gym and prayed for him that God would strengthen and encourage him. There's a world out there. Let's use our spirituality to build a bridge to. They want to see if you believe what you say you believe. They're hungry for spiritual life. 
And that's what this place needs to be. That's what you and I need to be. And Darius was that kind of a man. Think about what he just said. He's not a Jew. But I'm going to give you everything you need. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If God would move on the heart of some secular people and just begin to bless believers in case they're right. Pray for me. Pray for me. Pray for my sons. There are people whose hearts are open to God in spiritual vitality, and we need to build bridges to them, and we need to be that kind of person. They're unbelievers who are open to spiritual experiences, and God can move on their hearts, and faith is about the well-being of the whole person, not about you confessing just your financial prosperity, but if we're children of God, that gives us health spiritually, that gives us health emotionally, that gives us health physically. The Bible tells us that he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. What is that? He healed your spirit. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. What is that? He healed your mind, and by his stripes we were healed. What does that mean? He healed your body. We have the message of spirituality. Let's loose the bonds of religion and start being the church out in the world and let the life of God radiate through us because there are a number of secular people out there that are looking for spiritual life. Especially now. Are you hearing me? Especially now. He was a man of spiritual spirituality. Number three, this is really important. He was a man of authority. He was a man of authority. This guy meant business. When you're going to deal with Darius, you're going to deal with a man who means business. Look at what he says. <laughs> Furthermore, I decree. Are you following along? You're not going to believe me. If you don't see it in here, you're not going to believe this is in here. Furthermore, I decree that if anyone defies this edict, <laughs> a beam, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying so hard to stay focused right now. A beam is to be pulled from their house and they are to be impaled on it. And for this crime, their house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God who has caused his name to dwell there, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change this decree or destroy this temple in Jerusalem. <laughs> I am not recommending what I'm going to say next. I'm not saying it's a good idea. Hold your hand up if you understand what I'm saying. I'm just responding to the scripture. Hello, are you with me? How about in the balcony? Are you with me? I'm just one. That's all I need. I'm just responding to the scripture. <laughs> but it'll change your view of authority when they start impaling people on posts. Rather than, oh, it's going to be okay. He is saying, I'm drawing as hard a line as I can draw. You mess with these people, I'm taking you out in your household. Now, you say, well, that's pretty cruel. That's pretty, not in that era, not in that day. It was a line drawn. Do you think people are going to cross that? Not if he means it. If he doesn't mean it, they'll cross it. Yeah. You can't say what you don't mean and mean what you don't say. You have to say what you mean and mean what you say and then enforce that. We're living in a culture of antinomianism, of against law. Do you know that the spirit of Antichrist is a spirit of lawlessness? He's called the lawless one. 
And what we're seeing in our culture today is a rise of the spirit of Antichrist. And when the spirit of Antichrist rises, there's a wave of lawlessness. And much of what's happening today, and I'm for equal rights, and I'm for, you know, uh, uh, loving everybody equally. And when people are mistreated because of their ethnicity, that's a sin. I have voiced that, and I'll stand against that, and it needs to be stopped, whatever it takes to stop it. But that's not what's happening in every place. When several hundred people bash out the windows of a bank and go in and loot the bank, that's a spirit of lawlessness. It's a rejection of authority. And when you suggest, this may get me in trouble, and the staff got worried last week. They're going to worry more this week. <laughs> but when you, when you want to replace the police in major cities with social workers... I'm moving. Okay, I'm just saying to you, you have to honestly look what's happening in these days that I believe are the beginning of sorrows and see the spirit of lawlessness raising up. You see it in our own community. We're having more acts of vandalism here than we've ever had to deal with in my tenure here. Why? Has nothing to do with with what's happening culturally or racially, it has to do with once there's a spirit of lawlessness at a higher level, you're going to see that same spirit of lawlessness manifest itself at a lower level. People blowing up beer bottles on our parking lot, throwing, as they did last night, watermelons against the glass, cutting a catalytic converter off our vans. Those things are happening regularly. Why? Because there's a spirit of lawlessness in the land. And people who are lawless cannot be reached with the gospel because they've identified with the spirit of Antichrist. I may have to put a fence around my house after that, but I believe it's true. He was a man of authority. Anarchy is the spirit of Antichrist. To destroy order and authority. The Antichrist is described as the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. And you'll watch a culture that will embrace lawlessness, and then they'll respond to the lawless one who will overthrow everything that Jesus comes to do and set the stage for the tribulation period. God can move on the hearts of those who understand authority. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him. How many remember this story? Asking for help. This centurion might have been a God-fearer, but he wasn't a Christ follower. Lord, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me or under my authority. I tell this one, go, and he goes. This one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. You hearing what I'm saying? He was astonished at what he heard, and this was his summation. He said to those following, I tell you the truth. I've not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. There is a direct correlation 
between the blessing and power of God and being under authority to him and under authority to his word. And people who reject that reject the very uh, construct that enables them to respond to God. And so what I'm saying to you this morning is we need to be people who understand authority in the right way and build bridges to people who understand authority. Whether they're Christ followers or not, they're people that God can move on their hearts. I believe there's a large element in the United States today that's getting fed up with the spirit of lawlessness in our land. We need to build bridges to them. And if you just pay attention, those that are being fed up with lawlessness are not just Caucasian. There are black Americans. Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans who are all saying the same thing. This spirit of lawlessness is not what we embrace or endorse, and there needs to be a stand against that. We need to not burn bridges to people who respect and understand authority. We need to model what it means to respect authority and build bridges to them. Is anyone hearing me this morning? What else do we know about Darius? Number four is a man of diligence. In chapter 6, verse 12, the second part of that verse, I'll overthrow anyone. He says then, I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. That word diligence means speedily, thoroughly, eagerly, diligently. He valued excellence and diligence. And he said, I want this to be done, and I want it to be done right, and I want it to be done promptly, and I want it to be done well. I'm telling you this morning that our God is a God of excellence. He's a God of diligence. He's a God who gets the job done and expects the, th- the same out of his people that we don't do things half-hearted or halfway. When God created the world, he stepped back at each day of creation and said what? He saw that it was good. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 tells us that we're to do our work with all of our might. Half-heartedness is not God-honoring. Hebrews chapter 6. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. Your excellence, your diligence, your prompt following of God will keep your hope to the very end. And then he says, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Now I'm going I'm to be very, very careful. There is no blessing or anointing of God on laziness. And I know, and I'm going to talk to you that are at home, watching online. I understand, I fully understand and endorse why some people need to continue to quarantine and, and, and isolate. I get that. I'm 100% for it. But I'm not for spiritual laziness. Show the same diligence in worship you would show if you were here. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Get up, get dressed, get ready, and prepare yourself to worship. Whether you're here or there, God doesn't bless laziness. He blesses diligence in worship. And I understand why some are still staying home. I get that. I'm for you. I believe, I understand there are reasons. But there's no excuse for being lazy. Hallelujah. How many hope this is over? Lastly, he was a man of openness. There's a great celebration beginning verse 19 in Jerusalem, the Feast of Passover. The Lord filled them with joy. Why? This is so good. 
For seven days they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread because the Lord had filled them with joy. Why? By changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of the God of Israel. God opened his heart. He changed his attitude. Do you know God can do that? He can't change the attitude of people who have closed minds. He can't change the attitude of people who have hard hearts because they won't respond. Do you know why he changed the attitude of the king? Because the king was willing to have his attitude changed. It's been said over and over, people that know everything, they know everything, are an irritation to those of us who do. If you think you know everything and you think you have all the answers and you can't have your mind changed, that's not a heart God can open. Now, I'm not talking about being open. Some people are so open-minded, their brains fell out. Okay, I'm not suggesting that. I'm saying, though, that there has to be an openness that you might, you might learn something. You might experience something new. You might see something fresh. And if your heart is open, God can open your attitude. Ben Franklin said, being ignorant is not so much a shame as being unwilling to learn. Thomas Paine said, to argue with a man who has renounced the use and authority of reason and whose philosophy consists in holding humanity in contempt is like administering medicine to the dead or endeavoring to convert an atheist with scripture. Susie Kasem, the ego is what drives a self-serving individual who hates to admit they're wrong. And then Acts chapter 16. One of those listening, the great revival that happens in Europe, was one of those listening was a woman named Lydia. Not a Christ follower, God-fearer, not a Christ follower. Who dealt in purple cloth in the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God, the God of heaven, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Why? Because she was willing to let her heart be opened. So let me capture those five things. Who are we looking for to build a bridge to and who do you need to be in order to build a bridge? You need to have integrity, spirituality, authority, diligence, and openness. The condition of your heart dictates your response to the Spirit of God. And where are you in that? <laughs> Let me tell you a heart God can't use. Nobody is going to tell me what to do. I'm hearing that in our own body. I'm hearing it all over the country. And when your mindset is, no one is going to tell me what to do, that's, that's dressing up the spirit of lawlessness. Are you hearing me? We need to look at our own hearts this morning. Do we have integrity? Are we people that live what we say? Do we have spiritual reality in us? Do we understand and operate under authority? Do we live our lives with diligence and are we open to receive from the Spirit of God? How is it with your heart? Because if your heart is right, ooh, listen, you get, 
if your heart is right, God will empower you to build a bridge to someone whose heart's hungry. I'm going to say that again. I wish I'd thought of that on my own. I'd write that down. If your heart is right, God will use you to build a bridge to someone whose heart is open. And that's who we need to be today. Would you stand with me? Pastor Nathan, lead us in worship. Let's take some time to just let the Spirit of God soak in us and speak to us about the condition of our hearts. You stood before creation Eternity
Lord Jesus, in this crazy, chaotic world that we're living in today, when it is so easy to burn bridges toward people that we don't like or don't agree with, would you help us to look for hearts that we can build bridges to? Hearts that you're warming, hearts that you're touching, hearts that you're reaching out to. Help us build bridges to them and give us the kind of heart that attracts your favor and favor with people who are hungry to know you. Help our hearts be right so we can reach hearts that are hungry. I ask in Jesus' name. And everyone that loves him said, amen, amen, amen. God bless you. If you'd be seated just for a moment this morning, I want to encourage you that giving is always an act of worship. And thank you, those of you that are giving online, that are sending in offerings and are giving on your way out. We appreciate your financial support. But more than, more than that, it shows that you're not lazy about your faith. Amen, that's right. Giving says, I'm committed to what God's called me to do. And we appreciate that and appreciate however you're giving. And then